Welcome back to Ghostbusters Minute. Ghostbusters Minute is the fan podcast that chronicles and overanalyzes the classic 1984 film Ghostbusters minute by minute. I'm Kyle. I'm Brad. And today we are here to bring you minute number 43 of Ghostbusters. Wasn't it awesome having Brad on yesterday? It really was, man. I mean, but one, you know, great podcaster, great uh, just personality for this, you know, type of work, uh, but also just a great dude all great around. Great dude, yeah. yeah. He's, he's been really helpful with... Um, Efforts in finding a cure for the disease cystic fibrosis. Yes, uh, he definitely has a passion for trying to eliminate cystic fibrosis, and uh, we thank him for all of his hard work in doing so. He's a great dude. We'd love to have him on again in the future, which I hope can happen because we're whittling down to the, not the final episodes, but we're almost at the halfway point coming That's up pretty true, soon. yeah, and we've got uh, some other special guests coming up, so yeah, stay yeah. tuned. Some people, we got a book for some stuff. So, um, But anyway, hey, are you ready to get on into minute number 43? Let's do it. Let's do it. Now, in the previous minute, we saw the hiring of Winston Zedmore on Winston's Day. At the minute's end, we saw Peter Venkman waiting outside of the concert hall for Dana Barrett. At minute number 43, Dana Barrett has just told Peter Venkman that seeing him was a nice surprise. Venkman tells Dana that she sounded great and that she was the best one in her row. Dana tells Venkman that he is good at listening to an orchestra because most people can't pick out a single instrument in the sea of sound. Venkman tells Dana that he doesn't have to take any abuse from her because he has hundreds of people trying to abuse him all day. At 43.15, Dana tells Venkman that she knows that he is a big celebrity now and asks him, asks him if he has any information on her case. At 43.23, Venkman asks Dana, who's the stiff? Dana tells Venkman that he's one of the finest musicians in the world and asks again if he has any information on her haunting. At 43.30, Venkman tells Dana that he has found some information, but that he would prefer to give it to her in private. Dana asks asks him to give it to her right then and there. He agrees and tells her that they had found the name Zul and information that stated that Zul was worshipped as a demigod around 6,000 BC by the Hittites, Mesopotamians, and Sumerians. At 43.52, Dana takes the piece of paper that Venkman is reading from him and reads that Zul was a minion of Gozer. Dana asks Venkman, what's Gozer? Peter responds, Gozer was very big in Samaria. Big guy. At 43.58, Dana asks him, then what's he doing in my icebox? And thus ends minute number 43. So, 43, we have the first mention of Gozer in the movie now. That's right. Yeah, so Gozer's now officially in the Ghostbusters universe. And, uh... Gozer's actually got some uh, pretty interesting origins on on the history of the name and how it was chosen for the movie. But first, I want to talk real quick about, do you know who the Hittites are, the Sumerians? No, the Mesopotamians? Okay. Hittites were a kingdom that was around the Bronze Age in Turkey and Lebanon. The Mesopotamians and Sumerians were the ancient Iraqis. So there's no record of any sort of Zul or Gozer in any of their religious texts. The Hittite kingdom was around 1600 BC, so it would have been the very, very ancient Hittite predecessors that worshipped Gozer. So we're talking like very, very, very early prehistory. And again, all things that aren't there; those are outside of Ghostbusters lore. The real stuff, but is, yeah, pulling from yeah, it. yeah, pulling it in. So six thousand BC—that's a very, very long time ago. Uh, in six thousand BC, agriculture was invented in Egypt. So we're talking about the invention of agriculture. Before that point, there was no farming. So yeah. uh, Gozer's being worshipped around the same time as like farms and stuff like that. The entire sixth millennium was a part of the Holocene climactic op- optimum. Uh, so we're the 4th, 5th, and 7th t- millennia. Uh, this is a warm period, also known as the Atlantic period, which was characterized by minimal glacian, excuse me, which was characterized by minimal glacian and high sea levels. So kind of like a global warming type period that was good for growing crops and stuff like that. And uh, have you ever heard of Nibiru? N- no. Nibiru? No, what is that? Nibiru is this theory that some people have that... Uh, it's an ancient aliens theory that there is another planet outside of our solar system that gets closer to our solar system. And when it does, the Nibiru's visit the, the, the earth and give people knowledge. So there's a lot of 
theories out there that uh, aliens came to Earth a long time ago. You've heard all these before, right? Ancient alien theories. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this would have been around the period that the Nibiruians uh, came to Earth and taught people how to farm. So it's kind of funny that this is the period that uh, Gozer was worshipped, that uh, this was the same time agriculture was invented. So I found some interesting information on the name Gozer. Uh, it was the name of an upstate New York Chevrolet dealership, and the, go- the word Gozer was supposedly also found written on things during the infield poltergeist case. Really? Do you know what the infield poltergeist? No, what's that? Uh, it was, if you've seen The Conjuring 2, it's the ghost story from The Conjuring 2, where this uh, woman who had uh, four kids, I think, uh, she was a, um, a single mom who had four kids, and two of the daughters started experiencing hauntings that, where they would get thrown around the room at night, uh, ghosts would come in and knock stuff around, stuff like that. And apparently they started seeing the word gozer written over and over again on the wall and on paper and stuff like that. So when, uh, of course, in his massive amounts of studying, Dan Aykroyd finds this word gozer and finds a way to tie it into the movie. So it's a kind of public domain. There's no copyright on it. And if they put the word gozer on there, there's actually a real world link to that that people could go back and read. So it's one of those inspiration points where you're doing a lot of research and you find something like this and put it in. So, yeah, this was all shot in front of the uh, New York Philharmonic, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And... um... Um, apparently the uh, sound guy for the movie went crazy whenever he saw the fountains and all the noise that was going to be you know, caused by that. Really? But, uh, they, they wouldn't let him shut down the fountains. Um, so this scene does a lot of great you know, stuff, uh, kind of like the montage did, when it was both catching you up on how the story is progressing as well as connecting you, connecting you to the real world, the viewer, that is. Uh, and this scene is both developing... Peter and Dana's love story, as well as filling you in on all of the lore and uh, myth of like Gozer and everything like that. It's establishing that as well, both of which are happening simultaneously, both of which you are reading and understanding perfectly simultaneously. Just great screenwriting and acting. Yeah, they slip it in kind of to a, in, in, inside of a character yeah. moment. This actually is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is them out by the fountain. I just can't help but just fall in love with Peter and Dana. And, uh, and you're helped along by Elmer Bernstein's Dana's theme, which is being played out at the fountain. which is such a great piece of music. Um, and it's uh, just, I don't know, man, you, I really buy their connection. Mm-hmm. And it's um, effortless on both of those actors' parts because they just have that much charisma. I just believe every moment of her on screen. She's mm-hmm. such a natural actor. And, uh, I mean, of course, Bill Murray doesn't have to do anything at all, and you're... It's all eyes on him. The eye goes to Murray. Yeah. So uh, so do you think in this scene that Peter Venkman maybe has been broken down a little bit? His approach to Dana seems a little bit more respectful in a way. He's still joking around, but he's not quite saying, like, I'm madly in love with you. I wouldn't say he's been broken down. I'd say, if anything, he's been ramped up. Like, uh, mm-hmm. he's he's now he's got fuel to really go out and try extra hard. To uh, to get the girl is he is he maybe altering his angle of approach to maybe a little bit more respectful tone? Yeah, I can see that. You know, uh, he's he understands that it's like I'm gonna have to um, I'm really gonna have to try to get this girl on a date, and it's not gonna be a matter of you know convincing her that uh, he's able to read her mind through. ESP ability, uh, as he did earlier in the movie with, you know, I was just about to say eight o'clock when he's trying to get his uh, student uh, into bed. And now, yeah, it's a little bit more, he's got to take a little bit more respectful approach to it. And yet he's doing it right in front of this guy who's probably some sort of romantic interest on some level. And then uh, at the end of one of the upcoming minutes, it's hilarious to see Peter just really 
kind of um, owning the situation and mm-hmm. yelling, you know, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I hope you're feeling better, but you still look like crap, dude. Like, like a little pale there, <laughs> and sir. And he's saying like, all right, so I'll, we're going to have a date Thursday, right? Which is pretty, uh, um, pretty, uh, pretty impressive. But at the same time, Peter's also showing that, you know, he has not done his homework. He's not studied up on this. He can't even pronounce the word Hittites. And, uh, it's not an easy word to pronounce. No, well, of course I not. Mean, I mean, you know, reading off the page. Yeah. Maybe a small print. I don't know. Because it actually looks like Dana has a moment, too, where she has to concentrate on to figure out what it is, too. You know, she, he's like, what is this word? And she looks at it for a few seconds before she's like, hit, hit, Hittites? Hittites? Yeah. They also do a little bit of, like, uh, universe building here whenever he says, she says that you're a big celebrity now. And he says, right. I've got hundreds of people lining up to abuse me. It's just ever growing the scope of the movie without yes. having to show you a bunch of people. And headlines. Of course, the montage already took care of that for us, but it's just one more example of um, showing the scope of this movie. It confirms what we saw in the previous moment where mm-hmm. Dana Barrett's been following what's going on to them on TV. And on radio, yeah. yeah. So even though we don't see her full profile or face head on until she's in the kitchen cooking, we can't assume, yes, that that is her <laughs> restringing her cello and watching on her Sony Trinitron TV. And it's, it's also more uh, character development for Peter Venkman and showing that he is someone who's uh, he says he's got hundreds of people lining up to abuse him. He's not a well-liked person. And uh, I don't know. It just further, further develops this, um, this character. I actually think this scene when they're out there by the fountain is one of the more Peter Venkman-y yeah. uh, moments in the movie. Between this and him doing the you know, shock experiment in the beginning, um, this is where you really get to see that character come to life. And I, I feel that it is a little bit more of an arc from when we saw him earlier in the movie in her apartment. Or I think we talked about this movie where we had, I was saying that I didn't feel that Peter Venkman grew very much as a character to the end of the movie. But mm-hmm. uh, looking back on it minute by minute and overanalyzing <laughs> it, um, I think that this scene does show a little bit more of maturity on his part. Yeah, where he's, absolutely. He, he's talking to her as a person and not just as like a conquest. Mm-hmm. So. It's very well shot, too. Yeah. You know, you know it's, it's funny that you say that about the sound uh, guy kind of freaking out because the sound of the fountain, which would be fan, you know huge. Um, maybe there was some ADR done here because... Oh, yeah. And you, you can tell sometimes where Long it's shots. Very, very, very long shots of this stuff, which maybe is a little bit edi- uh, easier to edit. Uh, you know, the two of them walking out of the building and complaining about the uh, uh, composer... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then and then to this, it's it's a very long shot of the two of them getting over there. So uh, maybe there's a lot of ADR here. So here we have Timothy Carhart, who's uh, the violinist, who is the stiff. Now, sure, this guy's a stiff, but is he really doing anything all that bad? I know he's not like our boy. He's not the uh, the lead who we're going for. But I always kind of felt this dude got a bad rap. He represents the elite in this movie, which we have seen up until this point to be the pompous, arrogant bad guys. Okay. We've got yeah. the Dean Yeager. We have the hotel manager. Now we have this guy in coming up soon. We'll see Walter Peck. You know, these guys are the establishment. And further, we have the establishment again, these guys in coats who are dressed really well coming out. And, which uh, really makes this movie fit in with 80s comedy, where it was always about the underdog going up against the the uh, country club or the right. fraternity or something like that. So I love movies like that. I, know, I do. I really I mean, for all the problematic stuff that goes on with humor in the 1980s. Like I love nothing more than like, you know, the, the young roustabouts going up against the established elite. Yeah. So Timothy Carhart actually has a pretty impressive uh, filmography. What else has he been he in? He was in uh, some films and television throughout the years. Aside from Ghostbusters, he was in Thelma and Louise, Hunt for Red October, and Witness, which are pretty well-regarded Oh, Scott movies. Brothers movies. There you go. And uh, let's see. And his TV credits include Mad Men and Law and & Order, as well as a bunch of other stuff. So he's, you know, he's been around. Um, I heard that 
Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis both uh, said that they think the Timothy Carhart violinist character is the baby daddy. He's the guy, he's the mm-hmm. father of Oscar from Ghostbusters 2. So uh, maybe he is a piece of garbage because he, he, he ain't around no more. He could be. He could have been the, you know, the baby daddy from that point. Maybe after Peter Venkman, uh, you know, alienated or isolated uh, Dana Barrett, he was right back there to pick her right back up, you yeah. know. Great. Well, that's all I have for minute number 43. You got anything else? No, that's it for me. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up again. uh, If you haven't heard yesterday's episode, go back and listen to it. It was a lot of fun. We did have Brad from Cosmic Geppetto over here, and you do need to check out his podcast because it is required, essential listening, no options, not optional. Go back and listen to it. All right, folks. Well, join us again tomorrow for our big Friday episode. Uh, It's going to be minute number 44, where we're going to go over minute 44, (laughs) as we just said. So, well, for uh, Brady, I'm Kyle, and we're here to remind you that death is but a door, time away. We'll be back. Ghostbusters Minute is a fan-supported podcast. To become a patron of Ghostbusters Minute and gain access to exclusive weekly bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash gbminute. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at ghostbustersminute at gmail.com and visit us online at ghostbustersminute.com, facebook.com slash ghostbustersminute, twitter.com slash gbminute, and look us up on Instagram at Ghostbusters Minute. Our theme song is Ectoplasm by Audionautics, which is licensed under the Creative Commons Attributions License.